Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, church. You may be seated. I heard a small town, I heard a story about a small town, and how many of us know that some of the best stories come from small towns, right? I heard a story about a small town, and in that small town, they had one courtroom, and the prosecuting attorney called his first witness to the stand in the courtroom, and she was a grandmotherly, elderly woman. He approached her and asked, Mrs. Jones... Do you know me? With a certain air of self-righteousness. And she responded, Why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. (laughs) You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a rising big shot when you haven't the brains to realize you will never have anything to amount to more than a two-bit paper pusher. She says, yes, I know you. The courtroom is uh, in shock, quiet and still. The prosecuting attorney is is stunned, not knowing what else to do. He pointed across the room and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? And she replied, why, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster. I used to babysit him for his parents, and he too has been a real disappointment to me. He's lazy, he's bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. The man can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the shoddiest law practices in the entire state. Yes, I know him. The courtroom can't believe what they're hearing. At this point, the judge wrapped the courtroom to silence, called both of the lawyers to the bench, and in a very quiet voice, he said with menace, if either of you ask this woman if she knows me, you will be jailed today for contempt. We love those people in our lives that know us, right? Know us in the good days, know us in the bad days. And while we probably don't spend too much of our lives in courtrooms, there's a certain truth to the fact that no matter what room we're in, we are constantly playing this drama of judge, jury, and executioner, no matter where we are, no matter who we're with. The Bible says that we were made in God's good image. So that means before the fall and before the cancer of sin affected every single atom, but also every single thought and impulse of our human souls, we were designed and created with an analytical mind, a thinking mind, a discerning mind, a mind that wanted to discover. Not only that, Being made in God's image means that we were born with a certain sense of inherent intrinsic fairness. So with this analytical mind and with this certain sense of fairness, natural law, if you you, uh, so want, what happened after the fall is that that analytical mind became a critical mind. And that fair heart that longs for justice 
turned into a judgmental heart that looks to condemn. Now, this gets even more pernicious. This gets even more dangerous when that critical mind is blind to its own sin. And then we come across a word that Jesus used to speak of the religious establishment, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, not just critical, you are hypocrites. You are wearing a mask because you are blind to your own sin. You have every single pretense of self-importance and self-righteousness, and yet you are blind to your own sin. This is a huge issue that plays itself out in the entire Bible. I have no doubt it's a huge issue that plays itself out in your own life. I have no doubt it's a huge issue that's played itself out in every single church that you've ever attended. It will be a temptation. It will be a challenge. It will be a trial. Of course, even in this church, we are not immune. We are naturally analytical and naturally desiring justice. And yet, and yet, we have to be brutally honest about our own shortcomings, but about our own condemning hearts. So today's message, as we study John chapter 8, is going to be the stones of condemnation. So I have these three stones up here, and we'll walk through each of these applications from today's powerful, powerful story. Now the first one, the first stone of condemnation, is going to be surprising to you. It's going to catch you a little off guard, but it's directly appropriate not only to the world and to the culture, but it can still happen to Christians. Still can happen to spirit-filled, born-again, Jesus-loving Christians. The first stone of condemnation that we cast is that Scripture itself. Meaning that when we come to passages that we don't like, passages we don't understand, or even perhaps the reason why passages are in the Bible, what we have a temptation to do is not only walk away, but we have a temptation to say, see, I told you so, this Bible is not all true. Parts of it, I'm sure, are good. Parts of it, I'm sure, are inspired. But there are parts of it that are not true. So when we come to a passage like this, and perhaps it's a passage that you've heard many, many times, but I don't know how often you have really studied the historical context, not only of Jesus, the Pharisees, the scribes, and this woman caught in adultery, but also how this passage got to be in your Bible. So that's why even before we study verses 2 through 11, does anyone have a bracketed, indexed little um, marker in your Bible? The translation that I'm using says, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, 50 through, 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. So, have we ever studied this? Do we know what this means? Part of what happens when we open up our Bible is we need to remember that our Bible is beautiful, theological, but it is also historical, meaning that this is a collection of letters and words, prophecies and laws given to God's people over a long period of time, right? It is given to God's people specifically, intentionally, in real space and time. These are not fairy tales. This is not Aesop's fables. These were given to people in their real lives. And the Bible says from beginning to end, it's God-breathed. It's God-inspired. So what do we see? We see that throughout history, we have an amazing amount of historical evidence to support 
that what you have in your hand, this miracle that we call the Bible, is not only theologically true, but is also historically accurate. In fact, I will submit to you that the Old Testament and New is the most historically reliable book the world has ever seen. So why do we see here this little addendum? Well, let's explain how we got our Bible briefly, very briefly. Your Bible is the collection of not only stories and poetry, psalms and uh, prophecies, laws and all those things, historical accounts, but they're manuscripts. They're manuscripts. It's not like a Bible fell from sky and was completely presented like it is in your hand right now. So here's the good news. When we come to something that's intellectually challenging like this, that intellectual challenge can give us courage and strength if we're willing to study, if we're willing to learn. A lot of us, we won't be willing. A lot of us will just come to the Bible and say, all right, give me what I need today, and I'm not interested in doing the hard work. I'm not interested in doing the labor. Yes, I will spend 17 hours on my smartphone on social media today, but if you ask me to think about my Bible, I'm just not going to think about it. And that's a tragedy. Why? Because we're called to love the Lord our God with not only our heart, not only our soul, not only our strength, but what? So here's the beautiful truth. Whenever we uh, experience something difficult in Scripture, there are wonderful answers. You just got to push in. So let's talk about manuscripts, shall we? Let's pull up this first slide. What we're going to do is do a comparative study of the different manuscripts in the Bible. And I'm not sure how well you can read this. Um, but for example, Plato, who lived from 427 to 347 BC, the earliest manuscript was 900 AD. So that means between his life and the earliest manuscript we have of him, the gap of time was 1,200 years. And how many copies? Just seven copies, okay? Next slide. Let's talk about Aristotle. Aristotle lived between 384 to 322 BC. The earliest manuscript that we have of Aristotle is 1100 AD. The gap of time is 1400 years. The number of copies, five. Seven, five, 1100 years, 1400 years. No one doubts that Plato and Aristotle lived, but let's take a look at the next slide, shall we? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived between 3 BC and 30 AD. The earliest manuscript is actually in the Gospel of John. The P52 is a papyrus fragment of the Gospel of John. It's been dated to about 125 AD. When was the Gospel of John written? Most scholars agree, around 90 AD. So that means you have a manuscript, we have a historical manuscript that's just 30 years detached from when John first wrote it which is unthinkable. Aristotle, 1,400 years. Plato, 1,100 years. The gap of time between John writing and the historical provable evidence that we have, 30 years. Friends, you don't go from just being a good teacher, like many people think Jesus was only a good teacher, or perhaps a good example, or a good activist. You don't go from being just a good teacher to being God in 30 years, right? That would be like proclaiming Ronald Reagan to be God on earth. We might really like Ronald Reagan, but none of us are creating churches to worship Ronald Reagan, right? Let's go to the next slide. Not only the smallest gap, but also the greatest number of manuscripts. 13,000 copies 
of manuscripts compared to what? Plato, what was it? Seven, five, right? And now here, 5,000 Greek manuscripts that contain all are part of the New Testament with 8,000 Latin manuscripts. If this doesn't get you excited, we're probably not paying attention. Meaning that the historical reliability of the Bible, of the New Testament, by far, far and away, and no one disagrees with this. No one can truly argue with this. Even the most hardened, secular, liberal historian and scholar will have to say you're right. We got a lot more evidence, leagues more evidence, truckloads more evidence for the veracity of Jesus Christ and his eyewitness account than anything else, whether it's Plato, Aristotle, or even Julius Caesar. You can go to the next slide, Zach. So when we come to this passage, what's the tension? Here's the challenge. This passage in John chapter 8, it's only one of two passages that are like this. John chapter 8 and Mark 16, one of two. So when the scholars and the theologians that translate the New Testament from Greek into English, what they want to do, because they take the veracity of Scripture so seriously, they want you to know that this is the only exception. This one and Mark 16 are the only exceptions. Everything else we have is from very, very early on. So that's why they put in brackets. The, the passage is absent from all the manuscripts. This is John 8. Dating before the 5th century, that's the first challenge. The second challenge is that when this passage does appear in manuscripts after the 5th century, it's in different locations in the gospel. So it's at different places in John. Sometimes it shows up in Luke. This passage, number three, is not quoted by the early patristic church fathers until after the 4th century. So how many of us love this story? And it's almost like, all right, buddy, you're raining on my parade because I love this beautiful story. I don't want to raid on your parade. I want to inform you so that you can understand your Bible, but also I can say this. I can say this. There is every right and every reason to believe this is inspired by God and this actually literally happened. If you want to, you can understand this passage truly, simply through this lens. Everything you are about to hear in Scripture, in this passage, lines up with other passages throughout the Bible. Nothing you will see here is different, like the Apocrypha, for example. Nothing you see here is different than what we see in Jesus throughout every single other gospel story. Amen? So let's not cast the stone of condemnation on God's word. Let's study it, let's enter into it, and let's see what we can learn about Jesus, ourselves, and grace and forgiveness as we study it together. How'd everybody do? Amen. Got a little history lesson? Okay. This is the word of the Lord, we believe. Here we go. John chapter 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. But what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I love that. Verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you 
be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, listen to these beautiful words, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Here we have an intersection of Jesus' influence, Jesus' enemies, but also this new covenant grace that's available to every single person. What do I mean by that? Well, as it said at the beginning of this story, all the people came to see Jesus. This wasn't a small crowd. This was a big moment. Lots of people. This was right after the Feast of Tabernacles. He is back in the temple. There's probably still hundreds and hundreds of people. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is brought to his feet, this woman that was caught in adultery. And what these Pharisees and these scribes and the angry mob want is a trial for the woman. But in actuality, what the Pharisees are trying to do is set a trap for the woman because in the end, who is really on trial in this passage? Good job. Jesus. So what we want to understand here is the weight of it, the weight of it, but also just truly how dark these Pharisees are in the sense that they're using this woman. And yes, let me be as clear as I can. This woman's life hangs in the balance with what Jesus is about to say. Depending on how he answers this question, her life is in the balance. That's always the case, by the way. Our life always hangs in the balance of who Jesus is and what he proclaims, what he promises, what he says, and what he will do on the cross of Christ. So here in this passage, they present this woman. And the trap is simply this. The trap is they are probably think of Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 20.22, 22.22, in the sense that the law of Moses said if anyone was caught in adultery, then yes, yes, if they don't repent, yes, if they don't admit and recognize their sin, then there would be capital punishment. Now, for those of us that struggle with that, we need to remember that's not just Old Testament. You remember the New Testament truth, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? How do we understand this in light of Christ? Well, we understand this as if to say, when we sin, we take it lightly. But God does not. God is entirely, perfectly holy. And we cannot enter into his presence with even a iota of sin's darkness contaminating our soul. We cannot have fellowship. We cannot enjoy and have reconciliation with God unless there is complete and total forgiveness of sin. So what happens here is they are thinking to themselves, the Pharisees, let us throw this woman down in front of this man. And if he says, well, just forgive her, right? Then he's breaking the law. But if he says stoner, then he's going to lose a lot of the public opinion. It's a devious, dark, awful thing to do. 
So if we were actually to study the law, those who are supposedly proclaiming the law and those who are supposedly defending the law should go back to the law because in the law, what you would see is that there would need to be evidence given. Did you notice the word accused there? It says this woman was accused of being caught in the act of adultery. Have you ever wondered, listen, where's the dude? Where's the guy? There's no evidence. There's no man. And include, the Bible says that not every single incident of adultery calls for stoning. Just for a, uh, uh, for example, a virgin that was committing adultery. Now, once again, in our day and age, this is all very, very difficult to understand. But that's what makes what Jesus is about to do so truly and beautifully powerful. What does he do? Well, the angry mob wants an answer. Some of them want blood. And our Jesus, what does he do? He disarms the situation by not making a proclamation yet, by not necessarily getting lost into the theological arguments yet. He just bends down and starts to do what? Writes in the sand. How many of us wish we knew what he was writing? How many of us guessed? We've made speculations as far as what he's writing. If we were meant to know what he was writing, it would be sold to us in Scripture, right? So here's the truth. I've always thought of it like this. In the sense that Jesus' coming is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. One of my favorite prophecies is how the coming of the new covenant and the coming of the king, the Messiah, would change our heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Let me read this from Ezekiel 36. Here is God's promise to God's Old Testament people. I will spring, sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. This is coming. This is about to happen. And I will give you a new heart. Can we say new heart? And I will give you a new spirit. Can we say new spirits? I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you that causes you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Could it be that the same one who made us from the dust is now writing in the sand, writing in these small little pellets, these small little pieces of stone to say to us, our hearts are still as hard as they've ever been. The people that are about to cast stones don't understand who Jesus is. So he stands up and he says something awesome. Can you envision this in your mind's eye? He looks at them directly in the eye and says, you without sin cast the first stone. What happens? The older to the younger, right? This is not always the case, but if we've been around the block, we know how much we've made a mistake. All these people were ready to judge and to condemn, ready to kill this woman. And then can you hear it? I mean, it's not just one. It's not just dozens. It's probably hundreds of people. Boom, 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 boom. Grace is breaking forth. Compassion is contagious. Why? Because they're convicted that she's not only the sinner, I am too. And that's why when we read this story, 
Where do we see ourselves? Where do we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves as the woman, the sinner? Do we see ourselves as the self-righteous one who's always condemning and judging others? Sometimes we see ourselves as the crowd, not getting invested, keeping our mouths shut, and looking away. This plays itself out all the time. So the second stone of condemnation, often found in churches, while we, by God's grace in the new covenant, we don't practice some of those Old Testament laws, restrictions, but also judgments, but we do cast our own stones, do we not? We cast our own stones through gossip and through slander. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 7, Judge not that you, you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Did you just hear that? With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use will be measured to you. The same measure and standard you're using to condemn others will be used against you. That should make our knees wobble, church. If it's not, we're probably not paying attention. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log? Speck, log. The log that's in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye? When there is a log, a log in your own eye. Jesus says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he does say, listen, there comes a time we have to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There comes a time where love doesn't rejoice with wrongdoing, where we bring sinners back in, where we lovingly challenge, convict, and rebuke each other, but we never condemn. And we never, ever, ever think that we are somehow better than our fellow believers in Christ. Lord, have mercy. If that ever becomes the culture in our church, watch how the joy of the gospel dries up, dissipates, and opposed to this being a beautiful place where sinners come and they are found and loved, and yes, they are saved. Watch when they're repugnated by the self-righteous, self-important spirit and how sterile and dark and cold it is. Paul David Tripp put it like this. Sin plays havoc on our spiritual vision. Although we are able to see the sin of others with specificity and clarity, we tend to be blind to our own. And the most dangerous aspect of this already dangerous condition is that spiritually blind people tend to be blind to what? Their own blindness. It's happening right now, right? Like how many of us are thinking, oh my gosh, I hope my husband's listening to this right now. Man, I wish that guy came to church today. Man, he's so judgmental. That guy's the worst. Do you hear your heart? I mean, our heart's saying it, even as we're teaching it, even as we're talking about spiritual blindness. J.R. Miller said it like this. It is better to have eyes for beauty than for blemish. It is better to be able to see the rose than the thorns. It is better to have learned to look for things to commend in others than things to condemn. Of course, other people have faults, and we are not blind, but then we have our faults of our own, and this should make us charitable. 
Now, as we come to the end of this passage, the last stone that is thrown is the stone of condemnation that Jesus himself will take. You have to understand, what we see here is not Jesus just overlooking this woman's sin. Let's say she actually was committing the act of adultery. It's a serious sin. So is Jesus just saying, all right, we're going to blow it under the rug. We're going to overlook it. We're just going to push it aside. No, the reason that he can look at this woman, I just envision her looking at her in his eyes, picking up her chin, picking her up off the ground, making her feel safe, and then, yes, telling her what? Go and sin no more. This sin will hurt you. This sin will uh, dampen and contaminate. And yes, take you away from my grace. Go and sin no more. But in the end, how was the law fulfilled? In the end, how could Jesus say, I don't condemn you either? Because he was going to take her penalty of her sin and pay that price forever on the cross. Jesus would be hurled with insults, beaten, whipped, a crown of thorns pressed upon his brow. He would be nailed to a Roman cross. He would take her sin, my sin, your sin, everyone that calls upon the name of Christ. We can find grace we can find forgiveness, but that's only because it was so costly. It was only because Jesus poured out his love, his blood, his life out of love for you. So this woman says, Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more. Why go back to your old master? Why go back to that old tyrant? Walk in the freedom that not only I'm proclaiming to you now, but the freedom that I'm going to purchase for you then when I die for your sin on the cross. Friends, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. And then I love this. What is the imagery of not only the cross, but what is the imagery of Easter? A huge, massive stone that's pulled away. So when we understand that Jesus is alive, and he resides in our hearts, and he takes our heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh, then we understand the importance that we should lay down these stones because the stone has been rolled away, and Jesus can make us new. Amen? Let's pray.